All right. Thank you, Sonia, worship team. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 2 this morning, uh, focusing only on four verses, verses 8 through 11. So if you can, find a Bible in the pew or the seat in front of you. Uh, we are going to be Revelation 2. Again, Revelation, the very last book in the Bible. So hopefully a uh, easy find for you this morning. If you weren't with us last week, we entered into a new study um, that we're gonna, is really going to carry us all the way up until Easter Sunday, where we are looking at some very detailed assessments that Jesus provides to seven different churches that we find in the book of Revelation. He gives them these assessments after analyzing their spiritual health. Now, this portion of Scripture really is so significant for two reasons. Number one, what this passage tells us is that Jesus cares deeply about the health of his church. He cares deeply about us, that he is among us when we come together and gather together for worship, when we interact with one another, we, we interact with the world around us. Jesus cares deeply with what that looks like. He cares deeply about the health of his church. But number two, what we find in these passages is what Jesus believes is most important in the life of any church. You know, 2,000 years later, I think sometimes we struggle to know what matters most when it comes to the local church. Is it our style of worship music? Is it the kind of preaching that we receive? Is it our doctrine? Is it the kind of ministries that we have? Is it the size of our congregation? What, what matters most? Well, in the book of Revelation, we find out exactly what matters most to Jesus and thus should matter most to us. In most cases, as he looks at these churches and examines them, what he finds is that there are some very good qualities and some very bad qualities to be rebuked in each of these churches. That's what happened last week when we looked at the church at Ephesus, if you remember. Uh, there are some great qualities about the church of Ephesus that were to be praised, and yet in that moment as Jesus looked at them, he had one fatal flaw. He saw one thing in that church that wiped away all the good things that they had done, all the good things that they believed, and that flaw was this. They had walked away from their first love. While they still went through the motions, while they said and did all the right things, that church lost its original love that it had for Jesus. And so Jesus rebukes them. He tells them to repent, and he warns them that if they don't repent, they will cease to exist as a congregation. It's a very harsh warning to the church at Ephesus. Now, I just want you to know, church family, I've been praying for you all this week that God would somehow, some way, bring back to mind, to your minds throughout the week, what we learned in that passage. Because I'm just telling you, as we go on and we look at all these other churches, none of that will matter if it is not built on the foundation of a church that absolutely is falling more and more love with Jesus. If you as the congregation members are not falling more and more in love with Jesus and living out that love and obedience to him, then nothing else we read matters. That is the foundation for everything else we will read. But with that foundation in mind, today what we're going to do is we're going to look at two of the remaining churches that share some very important qualities. We're going to focus most of our time on the church at Smyrna, which is these verses, verse 8 through 11, but we're also going to glance at the church at Philadelphia. Now, the reason I'm lumping these two together is not that somehow that they are less important than the other churches. In fact, it's the exact opposite. When you look at the seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation, 
These are the only two churches that do not receive a rebuke from Jesus. When Jesus looks at these churches, he sees churches that are vibrant and healthy and are praiseworthy. He sees churches that are examples to all of us, even to First Baptist Church 2,000 years later. So as we begin to read this passage, begin to ask this question, what sets this church apart? What makes them worthy as an example for all churches throughout the history of the world? Revelation 2, starting in verse 8, let's read God's word together. It says this, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. It's the word of God this morning. Now the first thing you're going to notice as you look at this assessment that Jesus provides is that it is a very short assessment, right? As Jesus looks at the church and the congregation there at Smyrna, he doesn't highlight all the good qualities that he sees in them. Instead, he goes directly to this one quality that makes them stand apart from all the other churches in that culture. And that one quality was this, their steadfast faithfulness to Jesus in the midst of severe persecution. Out of all the things Jesus Jesus sees in this church, he highlights this one thing, and he does almost the exact same thing when it comes to the church at Philadelphia. If you go to chapter 3, look at verse 8. It'll be on the screen. Jesus looks at that church and he says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one else is able to shut. I know you have but little power and you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You see, when persecution comes, it reveals a lot about a church. It reveals a lot about a person. Like a refiner's fire that separates impurities from that which is of great worth, so persecution refines those who say they're part of the church of Christ. Rarely will somebody be imprisoned for, rarely would somebody die for something they only believe in half-heartedly. And so persecution, what it does is it makes things very clear. Now, as a church in modern-day America... I realize that one of our main problems is that it is hard to understand the importance of something we have never fully experienced, right? I think whenever you come to these passages in the Bible that deal with persecution, it's hard for us to to take these words to heart because we haven't experienced what they experienced. But I want you to think about what the church in Smyrna was experiencing. During their lives, persecution had already begun and was only getting worse, When you look at church history, one of the most famous martyrs in all of church history was a member of the church at Smyrna. It was a man named Polycarp. If you can read about his life through different people, it's really interesting. But over and over again, they came to him and they said, you must recant your faith. 
you must declare allegiance not to your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but to the emperor, and we will allow you to get live. But over and over, no matter how much they threatened imprisonment, no matter how much they threatened death, Polycarp says, I cannot turn my back on the Lord and Savior who has saved me. The result for Polycarp was that he was impaled on a pole, covered with pitch, and then lit on fire as the crowds watched with enthusiasm. You see, these church members in Smyrna that we're talking about would go on to see many of their brothers and sisters in Christ killed by the gladiators for entertainment. They would go on to see many of their family members thrown to lions and other wild beasts to be devoured for the sake of following Jesus. There would be such such a great mass of Christians crucified that literally they lined the roads of inward and outward from Rome with crucified Christians so that people could watch them die on their way to vacation. So this church knows persecution. This church knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. This was their reality. But friends, I realize this is not our reality. And so what are we supposed to do with a passage like this? Well, I came across a quote this week that helped answer that question in my own mind. I hope it will be helpful to you. It was a quote in a book called The Insanity of God. It's a tremendous book. I would encourage you to read it. But it was by a missionary named Nick Ripkin that went throughout the world and and he interviewed Christians who had endured severe persecution over the last 50 years. So he went to all parts of the world. He went to the Middle East. He went to interview those who had lived through communist Russia. He interviewed people in China. He went all around to these believers who had thrived in the midst of persecution. Well, as he was interviewing two of these Chinese pastors that had been in prison for many, many years about how they had remained faithful to Jesus in the midst of their persecution, they said something that struck me. It's going to be on the screen. They said this phrase. They said, you can only grow in persecution what you go into persecution with. You can only grow in persecution what you go into persecution with. In other words, what they were saying is this, if you don't have the truths that are needed to endure you in the midst of persecution before going into it, you're not going to be having it while you're in it. They were pointing to this reality that we as God's people, no matter what place we're at in this life, we need to prepare our hearts with these truths, that these truths need to be burning in our souls so that if and when the day of persecution comes, we will be ready. And that is why these passages, I believe, are in the Scripture. They are meaningful to us because they are meant to prepare us for the future. Who knows what persecution you might come and face with? Who knows what persecution our church may come to face? But these truths need to be burning in our souls. So let's begin by looking at the circumstances surrounding the church at Smyrna. Look with me at verse 9. There Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Now, that word tribulation is noteworthy because it literally means pressure. Okay, that word tribulation is the word pressure. The congregation was in, in Smyrna was facing intense pressure because of their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. There were probably many reasons for that pressure, but there were three that we know about through church history that that really stand out. The first thing you need to know is that the city of Smyrna had very deep, deep ties with Rome. 
And for that reason, it had become the main seat of emperor worship in all of Asia. Okay, so if you were wanting to to worship the emperor, Smyrna was the place you were to go. You have to realize that in that day, the, the emperors were not just to be submitted to, okay? They weren't supposed to just be uh, followed after, but instead their civil authorities were to be worshipped. In fact, the emperor uh, Domitian made a mandate that you had to offer a yearly sacrifice to the emperor or you faced death. It was a criminal offense to not offer that sacrifice. Well, clearly for Christians, that's a problem because they have only one Lord and Savior, and that is Jesus. There's only one worthy of worship, and that is Jesus. And so when they refused to bow down to the emperor, when they refused to worship, they increasingly were pressured by the government. They were seen as rebels. They were seen as outcasts that were against the government. And for that reason, many of them were put to death. The second reason for this pressure that the church in Smyrna felt was that they refused to worship pagan deities in general. I mean, you look at this area of the world during this time, they worshiped an eclectic mix of gods. Zeus, Apollos, Aphrodite, there were all these gods that were meant to be worshiped. And almost every area of life, both business life and social life, revolved in some way around pagan worship. But when these Christians refused to participate in these activities that everybody else thought, this is no big deal, they were seen as as antisocial. They saw these Christians as, as being better than everybody else. And so there was increasing pressure from the outside world in this case. Many of the Christians began to lose their jobs because they wouldn't participate in all these activities. That's why when you look at that assessment that Jesus gives, he says what? Not only that he knows their tribulation, but he also knows their poverty. He's not talking about spiritual poverty. He's saying financial poverty. Many of these Christians had lost their jobs. They'd had all of their possessions stripped from them because they refused to just be part of the culture. If the world was to look at this church, they would not have seen a vibrant, healthy church. They would have seen a a church full of foolish nobodies as outliers that needed to be marginalized for the sake of everyone else. I think we can all agree that's a lot of pressure on a church. Last but not least, Jesus points out that their faith had brought about false accusations from a very specific group of Jews in their region. Verse 9 again, he says that I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. These are very strong words. What Jesus is saying is that some Jews think they are working for God in their persecution of the church, and yet they are actually working against him. To many of these Jewish individuals, they considered the Christians' claim that this crucified criminal was the divine Messiah to be blasphemous. They were not happy that some of their Jewish brothers and sisters were proclaiming Jesus to be king. And so they began to to give false accusations, at least half-true accusations, against God's people. What I mean by this is this. The Christians in this day were commonly accused of cannibalism because of their view of the Lord's Supper. Right? It's a misunderstanding of what Christians mean by the Lord's Supper. And so people were hurling these accusations against the Christians. They were also accused of being immoral, of being lawless because of a misunderstanding of salvation by faith instead of works, right? They said, well, you're just getting rid of all the law. You're getting rid of all of our moral standards. Last but not least, they were accused of political disloyalty and rebellion. Now, what I want you to see in that is that all of those things are half-truths. Yes, Christians partook of the blood and body of Jesus in communion, but it wasn't cannibalism, right? 
clearly. They did rely on Jesus for salvation instead of the law, but they weren't immoral. They did refuse to worship the emperor, but that does not mean that they were rebellious toward Rome. As you think about this, is it not true that not much has changed? While the intensity of persecution may have lessened, at least here in America, I would imagine that at some point you have felt pressure from the culture around you to conform your faith to better fit with this city or to better fit with the culture around us. What was happening in Smyrna 2,000 years ago still happens today. When our Christianity goes public in a lost world, they will not just write us off as being wrong. Instead, they will look at us and say, well, they're, they're dangerous, they're evil. In our culture, it is almost impossible to disagree on anything without being misunderstood, without being labeled as hateful, a bigot, or even as evil itself. Even though we may not be facing imprisonment and jail and death, many Christians are increasingly feeling the pressure of being marginalized in their friendships, in their workplace, and even in their own families for being faithful to Jesus. So this morning, as we think about this reality of pressure, what does Jesus say to us? Well, I think he says two important things to each and every Christian that faces pressure for their faithfulness to Jesus. The number one is this. He looks at the church at Smyrna and he says, it's worse than it looks. Isn't that encouraging? Isn't that comforting? He says it's worse than it looks. When Jesus seeks to encourage the church in Smyrna, he does not give them false comfort. He does not say, think happy thoughts and your circumstances are going to change. No, look at verse 10. What does he say to them? He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. In essence, what Jesus tells them is, it's about to get worse. You've suffered already. You've stayed faithful in the midst of your suffering, but it's about to get worse. Some of you are about to be thrown in jail, and many of you are going to have to be faithful when? Unto death. He's looking at them and honestly saying, you very well may lose your life on behalf of me. If that wasn't bad enough, they are, they're also told that their enemy is not who they thought it was. It wasn't the powerful Romans. It wasn't the slandering group of, of Jews. Their enemy was more powerful than that. Who is it? It is Satan himself. That's why those slandering them are called a synagogue of Satan. And then in verse 10, what does Jesus say? It is the devil that is about to throw some of you into prison. Now, I realize that many of us intellectual, modern-day thinkers doubt a literal Satan. But friends, you need to understand something. Jesus never doubted a literal Satan. He spoke about him regularly. Instead, he gives these Christians a glimpse of the reality that their persecution was not some random outlier, but was instead just one more skirmish in an age-long war between Satan and God. From the Garden of Eden to the the 40 days of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness up until today, it has always been Satan's plan to attack God's children and attempt to destroy their faith. That is why Peter says this in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He looks at us as Christians and he says, Be sober-minded, be watchful. 
your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, there are two truths here that I don't want you to miss this morning when it comes to persecution. The first is this. If your goal this morning is to avoid persecution, it is very easy to accomplish that goal. If your desire is to not experience persecution or pressure in any way, it's very simple. Stop loving Jesus and stop telling others about him. It's that simple. You don't want to be persecuted. You don't want to feel pressure. Stop loving Jesus. Stop proclaiming him to a lost world. Persecution stops immediately where there is no faith and where there is no witness. But the flip side of that is this. If you are committed to Christ, if you love him with all of your heart, soul, and mind, if you desire to proclaim him to a lost world, then you need to know this. Persecution is coming. Pressure from the outside world is coming. Opposition from the evil one is coming. After interviewing all of those persecuted Christians, Nick Ripkin, the writer of Insanity of God, he came to this conclusion. He says this, One of the most accurate ways to detect and measure the activity of God is to note the amount of opposition that is present. One of the most accurate ways to detect and measure the activity of God is to note the amount of opposition that is present. The more intentional you are about loving Jesus, the more intentional you are about serving Jesus, obeying Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, he's saying the more opposition there will be. So be ready, be watchful, is what he's getting at. It may be that many of us need to ask this morning, how much opposition, how much pressure am I facing in my life because of my faith and my love for Jesus? I think that question, if we answer honestly, could be very telling this morning. But I also think that this is an important reminder about who our enemy is. The enemy is not those people who may misunderstand you or slander you. It's not those people who may be pressuring you. It's not radical Islam. It's not secularist. It's not atheist. It's not a political candidate. It's not a social movement. Your fight is not with them as a follower of Jesus. In fact, those are the very people you are called to love most. Those are the very people you are called to pray for the most. Those are the very people that you are called to show kindness to and share the gospel with the most. They are not the enemy. At the root of all persecution is Satan. And we are to keep this in mind as we encounter opposition. Ephesians 6 verse 12 says this, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. So Jesus starts with the bad news. It's getting worse. But then at the same time as he's saying it's getting worse, what does Jesus also say? He says this, it's way, way, way better than it looks. Not only in one way is it worse than it looks, you have a strong enemy, it's going to get worse. He says it's way, way, way better than it looks. In the midst of this increasing persecution and pressure, Christians have an abundance of reasons to remain faithful to Jesus. There's some incredible promises that you find in this passage. And the first is this, Jesus has the final word. Look at verse 8. 
says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whom we have put all of our trust, is the first and the last. What that means is this, Jesus has the final word. It is this truth that nullifies all the slander we may receive in this life. In the end, there will only be truth, and our posture of serving and trusting in Jesus will be shown to be the posture of true wisdom, even when it looks foolish in this life. He says, endure the pressure, endure the persecution. I have the last word. But not only do I have the last word, but what does he say? He says, I'm the one who died and came to life. We as followers of Jesus are not to fear imminent trials because our lives and our destinies are in the hands of our eternal Lord who himself encountered persecution, who himself encountered death and yet overcame it through the resurrection. We too will be victorious because of resurrection. Neither Satan nor sin nor death could defeat Jesus. And for this reason, we who have trusted in him have nothing to fear. That's an incredible promise. But he also looks at them, he says this, not only do I have the last word, but right now in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your persecution, Jesus works in our suffering. In verse nine, what does it say? He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty. In other words, Jesus is not some distant king. Jesus is with us in the midst of our suffering. He is a Savior who can sympathize with our weakness and with our trials and even with death itself. And while Satan may use persecution to tear you away from faith, Jesus turns it around and he does the exact opposite. He uses persecution to create something amazing in the life of a follower of Jesus. If we endure it well, if we stay faithful to him, he produces what he calls incredible wealth. That's why in verse 9, what does he say? I know your poverty, but what? But you are rich. Friends, you need to hear this. It does not matter how much pressure you may feel right now because of your Christianity. Jesus in this moment says you are rich, even in poverty, even in prison, even in death. The church at Smyrna had every reason, humanly speaking, to fold its doors to close shop, head home. But they remained faithful to Jesus, never leaving their first love. And for that reason, Jesus says, you're lacking in nothing. You have everything that matters. You have eternal salvation. You have character. You have grace. You have joy. You have peace. You have security. You are rich. While the world's treasures, the world's accolades fade away, you're going to be shown to be the one who has treasure that is eternal and value. That's why James in James chapter 2 verse 5 says this, listen my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? He says be faithful. I'm giving you vast wealth, vast that doesn't die when you die, wealth that lasts for eternity. He then makes this last promise at the very end. He promises eternal life. The end of verse 10 says this, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you what? The crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. 
He says, to the one who remains faithful, to the one who keeps loving me, that does not fall into the pressure, what does he say? You will receive the crown that is life. Now that word crown, it's a term that they would have known well. It was a victor's crown that was given in the games in that day. It was worn by those who overcame. He's looking at these Christians, he's saying, be faithful, hold on to me. Don't turn your back, obey me, no matter what it costs you. Because you will receive the ultimate victor's crown. You will receive the crown of life. You will not be hurt by the second death. Now what is he talking about about the second death? The second death is the final judgment. That day where every single one of us will stand before our eternal creator and give an account of our lives and of our sin. In that day, every single one of you in this room will either be standing by yourself relying on your own merits, your own good works, your own sense of goodness, or you will be relying on Jesus Christ, relying on what he accomplished through his death and his resurrection. Friends, I am telling you, on that day, you do not want to be standing by yourself. Your good works do not line up with a holy God. Your sin is too great. But Jesus, through the cross, through his own persecution, through his own death and his resurrection, has given us the opportunity to have life. Jesus says, you will be with me for eternity. He says the same thing to the church in Philadelphia in chapter 3, verse 11. I'm going to end with this. He says, I am coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out from it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. And I will write my own new name. Eternal relationship with God, a pillar that will never be moved from the presence of the Lord. He says, that is what you get when you overcome, when you stay faithful to me. As we close, I end with this simple question. Right now, We aren't even experiencing the kind of pressure and persecution that they were experiencing. But in the midst of your own pressure right now, are you remaining faithful to Jesus or are you succumbing to the pressure of the world that surrounds us? I wonder what will be said of First Baptist Church San Francisco. You think about it, since 1849, this church has remained faithful. What will be said about us as we carry this church into the next generation? But friends, each one of you, I ask the same question, what will be said of you? Are you an overcomer? Are you faithful? Has he remained your first love? Or have you succumbed to the pressure? As you consider this question, consider the fact that Jesus was faithful to you. When facing false accusations, when facing imprisonment, when facing ridicule and beatings, when facing undeserved death in the most torturous way possible, crucifixion, Jesus did not turn back. He did not turn his back to you. He was faithful to you. He went to the cross and he took on himself the punishment that each one of us deserves for sin. He took on himself the punishment that every single one of us deserves. And by doing so, he made a pathway, a access to have a relationship with him so that we could be forgiven of our sin, so that we could have a relationship with Jesus that extends for eternity. Jesus did not turn his back. He was faithful to you. What will your response to him be? This morning, we're going to respond to this sermon by 
partaking of communion as a church family. As we take communion, it is a, another opportunity for our church family to both remember and proclaim what Jesus has done for us. It is our opportunity to remember that as we take the bread that his body was given for us. It is the opportunity for us as we take the cup to remember that his blood was shed on the cross. This is a reminder that Jesus was faithful to us. He remained true to us. He did not turn his back on us. And as we take of this reminder, we are called to examine ourselves. Are we being faithful to him? If you're a Christian and you're here in the room as we pass out these elements in this moment, I'm going to ask that you would simply take this time as an opportunity to examine your heart. How's your love for Jesus? Are you remaining faithful to him? In a moment as we pass these out, if you're not a Christian this morning, I would simply ask that you not take of these elements, that these are for Christians to remember what Jesus has done, but instead just simply consider what we've talked about this morning, that Jesus has, through his own persecution, through his own death and resurrection, offered you life, forgiveness of sins this morning. But I'd ask that you hold on to these elements, spend this time in prayer, and then I'll come back up and I'll close our time together by leading us in the taking of the Lord's Supper. Use this time now for prayer.